Hello, Bettys. Welcome to the show. Before we get to our guest today, I just wanted to let you know that we have such an epic list of guests coming up in March. We are talking about menopause. We're talking about autoimmunity. We're talking about muscle building. We're talking about recovery practices. And I don't want you to miss any of it. Even if you are listening to the podcast, you may not necessarily be subscribed. So you're going to have to manually go into your podcast app and press play. I would love for you to hit that subscribe button so that you are getting the podcast as they are released. It's going to make me oh so happy to know that you are a subscriber of the pod. You are officially a Betty in the Bettyverse. And of course, you are never going to miss an episode and be the first to know when it drops. Thank you so much. Meat has really become the ultimate scapegoat for our failing health, the warming planet, and your moral dilemmas around yourself. Welcome to Better with Dr. Stephanie. I am your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. This show is for women just like you with a deep desire for learning, self-actualization, and becoming more of who you already are. Every week, we are going to deconstruct how to build better bodies, better minds, better relationships, better sex, and better families. I'll be giving you access to world-class thought leaders to help give you the tools to answer this question. What are the simplest things that you can do today to get better tomorrow? I am part geek, part magic, and want to share the juiciest questions, topics, and often taboo conversations that I think I've always wanted to be a part of and I wanted to be having. So let's get better together. Hello, Bettys. Welcome back to Better with Dr. Stephanie. It's me, your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. And this week, I bring you a conversation with Diana Rogers. She's a registered dietitian, a real food nutritionist, and a sustainability advocate in Boston, Massachusetts. She's the author of three books, runs a clinical nutrition practice, hosts the podcast, The Sustainable Dish Podcast, and has served as an advisory board um, on numerous nutritional and agricultural organizations, including Whole30, Animal Welfare Approved, and Savory Institute. Diana is a leader in sustainable food systems and speaks internationally about the intersection of optimal human nutrition, regenerative agriculture, and food politics. She is the co-author of Sacred Cow, The Case for Better Meat, the director and producer of the companion film Sacred Cow, and her new initiative, the Global Food Justice Alliance, advocates for a nutritious, sustainable, and equitable worldwide food system. As you might imagine from her bio, this is going to be a deep dive into regenerative agriculture, why meat and particularly red meat is good for you and should be part of a regular diet. We talk about uh, initiatives like Meatless Monday and the whole carbon uh, emissions, you know, sort of myopic view of why we now hear politicians and world leaders talking about why reducing the carbon footprint uh, seems to be the only measure with which they are thinking about uh, saving the planet and why that might be incorrect. We talk, of course, about the methane cycle. So is it just cow farts and cow burps that are heating up the planet or maybe is there something else? So we talk about how methane, you know, from the belches of cows, let's say, are actually um, recycled into the uh, atmosphere and come back into the soil. We talk about uh, is you know we ask the question: Is there a way to do veganism correctly, potentially with alternative protein sources like crickets 
and bugs. <laughs> Yum. We talk about um, the ethics around uh, veganism, the environmental impact of veganism, and why uh, she makes the case, and I agree with her, that the um, environmental impact of monocropping, soy cropping, corn, all of these things with the pesticides and the runoffs and the um, impact that it has on uh, voles and rabbits and fish and all the things are far exceed that of um, uh, when we, when we kill, let's say animals for consumption. We talk about death and the human um, experience of death, our uncomfortability, uh, uncomfortability uh, with death. uh, But we talk about it as a part of the life cycle. So uh, it's a juicy one. It's a controversial one. uh, But I think it is one that needs to be had, especially when we see um, the global elite will say, uh, trying to poison the minds of our young children and us uh, around this idea that red meat is bad for you. So without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Diana Rogers. I am a huge fan of the Bio Optimizers Magnesium Breakthrough. It has seven forms of magnesium, which is going to help to transform your stress and your performance and your recovery and your sleep to the next level. I'm often asked like, well, what are the types of magnesium we should be looking for? So there's magnesium chelate and citrate and bisglycinate and malate, sucrosomial, taurate and orotate. They have various effects on the body. Bisglycinate, probably the most bioavailable and most absorbable. Malate, it's found naturally in fruits, helps with migraines. Chronic pain has been shown to help improve depression. Magnesium citrate uh, helps with arterial stiffness. It helps with maintaining a healthy weight. Magnesium chelate is important for muscle building, recovery and health, the list goes on and on. You're basically getting them all in one supplement. Each supplement itself is 500 milligrams of magnesium, which I feel is such a great dosage as a great baseline for most women. I have found a beautiful medium of actually cycling my magnesium. So I actually will take one or two of these. So I'm either getting 500 milligrams or up to a gram of magnesium, depending on where I am in my cycle. So head on over to biooptimizers.com forward slash better and use code better for 10% off of any order, but make sure that the magnesium breakthrough is in your cart. Don't be fooled by the frigid temperatures. Keeping hydrated in the wintertime is super important. In colder temperatures, we sweat more due to a higher metabolic demand of trying to maintain a core body temperature. We lose more fluids and electrolytes through our urine. We lose more water through respiration and just general breathing. And our skin dries out in the wintertime as well. We are a ski family, and over this winter, we have been using Elementee's Chocolate Medley. The chocolate chai is absolutely incredible with some boiling water, a splash of milk, and my kids love the chocolate mint with some hot water. This is our apres-ski. We cozy up with Element Hot After Hours on our cross-country trails. Now, for a limited time, you too can get the Element Tea Chocolate Medley and enjoy them hot as I have been doing with this exclusive insider bundle for you. When you buy three boxes of any flavor, it doesn't have to be the chocolate, it can be any of the flavors that they offer, you are going to get the fourth box 
free. If you head over to drinkelement.com forward slash Dr. Estima, you'll see that exclusive offer at the bottom of the page. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And tell me which of the chocolate, Melody, you love the best. Diana Rogers, I am so thrilled to welcome you to The Better Show. Welcome, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate being here. Yeah, and I, you know, we were talking a little bit in the pre-chat about some of the things that we're going to be covering. Uh, I've had Rob Wolf uh, on the show, your co-author of the book, Sacred Cow. And I wanted to continue this conversation because sometimes when I post things online about meat, Uh, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's just because I shoot from the hip and I don't, I trim out all the fat and I just kind of get right to the heart of the issue, but I can really incite some very angry people on my page. No way. (laughs) It's, it's, I'm sure. Don't believe it. (laughs) I am sure that you are no stranger to that. Um, And I I wanted to just kind of further this conversation. And I, I feel, you know, I've watched your, I've watched your, um, Uh, talk with uh, Joe Rogan. And of course, I've read the book. And I just feel like you are a very good advocate. And you break down some of the, uh, we'll say, virtue signaling and the arguments that we often find Mm -hmm. from the non-meat camp. And it's actually really sexy if you think about it, right? It's like, if you don't eat meat, you're going to live forever. You're going to be skinny. And you're going to be morally superior to everybody else. And save the planet. And save the planet. And if there's one thing that we know from social media is people love to virtue signal. And it's like this super airtight soundbite to perfection uh, argument that, of course, takes a long time to break down, right? We need to really examine, like, is it really saving the planet? Are you really going to live forever? Are you really going to be skinny? And if you're skinny, is it you're skinny because you're sarcopenic or is it, you know, like, like define skinny, right? So maybe we can uh, in, maybe I'll, I'll sort of just lob that big, you know, I'll lob that ball to you and we can maybe start by dismantling uh, some of these uh, claims, let's say, the ethical, the environmental, uh, the nutritional um, claims that we see from, it seems like more and more government agencies, which I think we can get yeah. to as well, um, yeah. around reducing meat consumption. Yes. And um, in the beginning of our book, Sacred Cow, so for, for anyone who's um, maybe saw us on Joe Rogan, we got a lot of hits for the film. The films are easy to watch, you know, hour, 20 minutes. And you, it definitely does cover like the big ideas, but the book really dives into things. So for anyone who's maybe seen the film and didn't pick up the book, I highly recommend you do. We have a like choose your own adventure section in the beginning, like does meat cause cancer page 72, you know, so you can kind of mm-hmm. go through all we, we, we started by just listing out all of the claims against me and then how do we attack them in the most logical way and so i mean really people are uncomfortable with the idea of death and animal suffering that's like what it comes down to they're unfamiliar with food production they want to just feel okay and they don't have the time to go through all of the research and all of the media and pretty much all the influencers out there are telling them that 
these plant-based alternatives are better. So um, it just sounds easy. And meat has really become the ultimate scapegoat for our failing health, the warming planet, and your moral dilemmas around yourself and death and the fear of death. So uh, so we, we talk in the beginning of the book, we have a chapter called Meat as Scapegoat. And we really talk about how did it even get to this point and why, like you said, our governments all of a sudden trying to reduce carbon emissions and that means reducing livestock or changing how, you know, what is that all from? I think, was it and Sweden? Sweet, I forget which country they banned meat ads starting in 23 the netherlands amsterdam they have they have banned meat ads starting in 23 which is preposterous it's absolutely ridiculous and i actually um i am cooking up a plan to actually push back against that which may include a full page ad in the new york times that's run Mm -hmm. by my nonprofit that i started Mm -hmm. um so i have a i have a group called the global food justice alliance and our main mission is to make sure that people who want access to nutrient-dense animal source foods have access to it we really push back against things like vegan fridays in the new york city public schools um and all these other policies that are pulling meat and livestock away from people who would really benefit from it like every human on the planet. So, um, so that's the mission of that organization. It's not industry funded and I'm the executive director and I have been flying all over the world this past year, Brazil, the UK, New Zealand, Australia. I'll be going to Ireland soon. I may even be, um, uh, attending the UN climate change talks. I was just invited to do a talk there. So I'm just sort of debating like, is it worth this gigantic flight to go to Egypt? But I could be influencing and should a I lot get a bigger people. life insurance policy? <laughs> yeah. um, but what I'm seeing around the world are these knee-jerk policies to reduce carbon emissions at any cost by people who have no idea that the methane emitted from cattle is part of a biogenic cycle and should be viewed very differently than fossil fuels, which are injecting brand new greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. So, um, so I, I do tend to reserve the ethics dilemma to the end because, and we did that in the book for a reason, because you can't talk about whether or not it's okay to raise a beautiful cow to kill it without fully appreciating the nutritional value that animal source foods have to humans and without understanding the environmental impact um, and benefits that grazing animals have and what are the unintended consequences of not eating meat and not having livestock. And so you have to weigh all of that in. You can't just have this philosophical debate about what is sentience and what is life without understanding like the harms that it can do, you know, permanent brain damage to children from B12 deficiencies, iron deficiency causing. um, Isn't it illegal? You can't raise, you can't raise, I think it's illegal in most places to raise a vegan child. Like they're going to have cognitive deficits. They're going to have stunted growth, IQ issues. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I was on a panel one time um, down in Virginia with a bunch of libertarians and we were talking about, you know, is it okay to raise a kid on a vegan diet or should there be some kind of, you know, I was trying to argue as a health practitioner and mother and dietitian, you know, someone concerned about nutrition that there should be some kind of policy that 
when um, a child is being raised on a vegan diet that the pediatrician is flagged and they agree to bring that child in more frequently for health checkups, for weight and height checkups, um, and that these parents agree to uh, receive information on how to potentially optimize that and also for warning signals so that they, um, you know, can start introducing animal source foods if they start to see any delays and they sort of like sign off on something. And it was funny because some of the folks on the panel were like, but well, that's the community's job or um, you know, what about the standard American diet? You could say the same thing, but the fact is we don't have communities really anymore. That's like intervening in situations like this. And it is very different than a standard American diet. Like even if you're eating McDonald's and, you know, Chick-fil-A, you're still getting animal source, animal source protein. It's not ideal uh, to be eating it in the fast food form, but you're still getting iron and B12 um, and, and a lot of nutrients that you absolutely cannot get from animal source, uh, from plant source foods. And so I, I do really feel pretty strongly that it is, unethical for parents to be depriving their children of nutrition. Like, I don't care what people do for the, themselves as adults, but when it comes to kids, it's really important. I mean, I was malnourished as a child and that's how I got into becoming a dietitian. I had undiagnosed celiac disease um, and had low muscle tone and um, some learning disabilities that were all resolved once I actually uh, started absorbing the food that I was eating. And so I'm really quite passionate about kids being able to, uh, access and absorb the right nutrients that they need in order to just give them, you know, a baseline footing in, in the world. Yeah. And there's, there's so much that you just said that I want to unpack, but I think it makes sense to your point around maybe speaking a little bit to the nutrition. Like I want to come back to, death and why we're so uncomfortable with death. Mm -hmm. I mean, you even see that in, we ship our elders off to homes and we, you know, the, we don't, we used to have, or they're, you know, at least, you know, I have, um, my, um, ex husband's family is Greek and that, you know, every Easter it's like, they have a lamb and it's like on the souvla and, you know, they're making like the, the lamb souvlaki, but like that would seem like barbaric to some people that you have a lamb on a spit. Mm -hmm. essentially cooking for six or seven hours. And we used to, um, you know, in, in sort of teleologically, when we look at human history, like there used to be sacrificial uh, lambs, you know, sacrificial animals, like not just lambs, you know, lambs and goats and, you know, whatever the local, uh, let's say, uh, animal was there. I mean, there was like you painted blood around the, the, the doors so that the, you know, I, I remember, I remember the story and I'm probably getting this wrong. So my history teachers are like, oh God, she should to fail this, but the, you know, when, when Moses, you know, the story of Moses, like they painted the blood around the thing so that the spirit would save the first sons, right? Like these sacrificial, and I think that's, um, uh, uh, the, for Israel, I think, or like the Jew is sort of in the Jewish, uh, faith, right? So there used to be, um, sacrificing of animals for, uh, for bounty, for protection, for celebratory, you know, celebratory things in, in, uh, in that society's life. And we don't do that anymore, but let's, yeah. I, and, I, want, yeah. And, well, I was just going to add to the fact that, you know, what we're seeing in society today is, um, you know, you use the word barbaric and that is 
a word that is used to describe the eating of meat today. Yeah. And, um, you know, and so many other things, too, that come into play with just gluttonous young culture uh, refusing to look at natural biology to, um, you know, basically refute nature and um, decide that, you know, they're whatever. We could get into this whole political thing, but, you know, we've got massive polarization right now, no nuance at all, no ability to question things. If you question things, then you are automatically- Tinfo hat. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it, um, unfortunately, this meat debate has- um, become something of a political. I am often um, tagged as, you know, a right wing racist for saying that meat is healthy. Um, and this should be a non-partisan, non-secular, like this should just be basic science because that's what it is. But unfortunately, it gets quite politicized because being vegan or vegetarian is associated with goodness and purity and progressivism and, um, you know, uh, being sort of this evolved, non-barbaric human. I will also say that I see this with women. So I see a lot of women in my practice. I I deal with a lot of practitioners and meat is like this, like men, fire, you know, like this sort of Neanderthal. Especially red meat, right? Exactly. Chicken less so, but red meat is the worst. Totally. Red meat on the Barbie, like on the barbecue is like the worst thing uh, that you could do as a woman. And it's like, actually, it's the full, it's getting, you know, coming back to this nutritional argument, it's your full complement of B vitamins. And this is not to say, by the way, that you can't get there with plants, but the amount of plants that you need to consume because of the bioavailability. And I want you to touch on this a little bit. Mm-hmm. Like you really have to do your jurisprudence to get, you know, specifically with protein is really kind of where I'm, I'm coming from with this. Like yeah. the plant protein, you know, again, just basic science is just not as bioavailable as the protein, the, the full complement, let's say, of amino acids, in particular, leucine, isoleucine, valine, like these three sort of main uh, amino acids that mm-hmm. drive muscle protein synthesis, which is what you need as you age to preserve your musculoskeletal system. Um, yeah. But it does seem to be this like man, fire, Neanderthal, big head, no brain, like all brawn, no yes, brains and I kind wish of thing. Women would just take it back and own the fact that we have forever been the last to get the meat. Mm. And so we should take it back and own it and yeah. reclaim meat as our own because We know iron deficiency and B12 deficiency are the most common nutrient deficiencies, particularly in women. Um, I live outside of Boston in a town where menstruating women, menstruating women, listen up. Yeah. Yes, Mm -hmm. I know. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, everyone in my area here is, you know, highly educated and cares about the environment, cares about their health. None of them are eating meat. And these women are walking around. I can see the iron deficiency just in their and the protein deficiency in these dark circles under their eyes, sunken in faces. I mean, I go to yoga and nobody has any muscles um, and and they're miserable because they're hungry all the time because they're not satisfied for a variety of reasons, but also because they're not satiated. And so there's just so many benefits, but you started talking a little bit about um, the amino acid and the bioavailability. And there was an interesting paper that Peter Ballerstead just shared with me. He's another guy that um, uh, he's on Twitter as grass-based and he's a forage agronomist. I just had him on my podcast, but we were chatting about this one paper that was talking about how 
they looked at uh, eight-year-old boys in India. They physically could not consume enough lentils and rice to get the amount of amino acids they needed. Period. Like, oh, so it was my statement impossible. is incorrect then. They yeah, they couldn't yeah. even like physically the volume that they needed. Um, right. Right. And you know, if you were to take so you can get 30 grams of protein from about four ounces of steak, which is about 180 calories. You would need to eat about 750 calories worth of beans and rice to get 30 grams of protein. And you're still not going to get the amino acids, the um, micronutrients, the, the, the vitamins and minerals that you can get in beef. And you're going to die from loneliness because if you're having that many beans, nobody wants to be around you. (laughs) Totally. And I mean, we have 70% of Americans are overweight or obese. What we don't need is extra calories. We don't need that. We we need um, satiety in a small calorie form that provides the best nutrients possible. And that's what meat does. Let's talk a little bit of the protein leverage hypothesis. I think that this this plays in really well to this conversation mm-hmm. that we're having around protein. So this is basically the the hypothesis that if you are eating an, an not like you know an adequate amount of protein, that your uh, we'll say foraging behavior for other macronutrients like carbohydrates and fat is going to be. Uh, attenuated. Whereas if you are not having enough protein, then you will make it up in, you know, within the other macros. So you're going to be over consuming, let's say carbohydrates or over consuming fat and very likely those two things together, which you can make the argument don't really occur that often in nature together with, say, for the exception of nuts, let's say we don't see a lot of fat and carbs happening together in whole foods and in nature. It's kind of like protein and fat, you know, or you'll see like protein and carb. You don't really see fat and carbs together. And so what happens essentially over time is that you increase the total energy ingestion over time because you're trying to satisfy this need um, uh, for you know adequate levels of protein. Which are hard to get in potato chips. Yeah. Yeah. But you <laughs> can eat a whole bag of them. On yeah. eating potato chips to get the protein it needs and then overeat in other ways. I mean, the um, that's... If I just adjust up someone's protein as a practitioner, you know, just at least I'll start them at 100 grams a day, which is less than what I think most people should be eating. But um, most people come to me eating like, oh, my gosh, 30 to 50 grams of protein a day, like one egg for breakfast. People think eggs for breakfast are like this great protein. It's six grams of protein. Right. So I'm like, yeah, you need to like stack that and really see, you know, so breakfast is definitely by far the the lowest protein. And that sets you up through the day. If you just eat a bang in protein breakfast, you're going to be full and happy and like calm and able to focus way through lunch. And I didn't really understand that, um, you know, until way too late in my life. Um, but it's just so easy to feel awesome if you just really front load your day and, um, and front load all your plates with, um, with a lot of protein, a lot of animal source protein. And it doesn't have to be beef. Um, you know, if there are certain animals that I, you know, like the idea of eating rabbit to me is kind of, eh, um, or, you know, there, there might be other, like, I get it. If they don't want to eat beef, it's fine. Like as a personal preference, you can do it with fish. You can do it with chicken, although chickens like, you know, not as healthy, probably one of the worst animal source proteins, as far as nutrient density goes. 
Um, but and there the, are I think ways the omega six it. profile is also like their omega six the is uh, it's f- much higher than the omega three. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 definitely. I think um, what we're bumping, and so I understand why you uh, maybe you might, or if you haven't considered maybe getting another life insurance policy, because what we're, <laughs> what we're actually bumping up against here is our culture. Like mm-hmm. if you think about breakfast foods, right? It's mm-hmm. like, I remember um, before we, when we used to watch TV, we don't, we don't anymore, but I remember just like having the TV on in the background and there was a commercial for Nutella and it was like, it's such a great way to give your kids energy. You know, it's like, like one tablespoon is like a hundred calories or whatever, whatever it was. Right. But then when you look at what that hundred calories is, it's like a hundred percent sugar and palm oil and like all this other very like it's like the sugar and the fat combination again and what do you put Nutella on you don't put it on eggs you know you don't put it on steak you put it on a piece of bread right you have you know the cereals and the and just forget Nutella like just classic sort of North American or Western breakfast you this happens in Europe as well you have a cornetto or you have a little biscotti or something in Italy or France for uh with your coffee for uh you know for breakfast yeah. here we have the bagels we have the muffins we have the the timbit the you know timbits that's me that's my Canadian showing that's like you know the Tim Hortons <laughs> donuts in the morning or the Dunkin donuts you know whatever America's running yeah. on Dunkin like all of these things again when you kind of look at the constitution of that it's like the fat and the carbs And when you look at the origin story of even cereals, like we don't even, I've talked about this before, but like Kellogg was a nut, like a full on crazy ass mother. Yeah. He was a nut. Uh, Yeah. Oh my gosh. The, or the, we talk a little bit about the seventh day Adventist religion and the origins of the anti-meat movement in the U S and it all comes back to Kellogg and the seventh day Adventists. And, um, I've done a few podcasts about it with Belinda Feck, who um, really looked into it, but um, it's, it's absolutely fascinating. And what I found about breakfast, it's egregious. It's egregious. Yeah, 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 totally. Yeah. Um, And it wasn't from an animal rights perspective. Initially, the anti-meat movement in the U S initially was from these visions that this woman had likely for mercury poisoning because she was hit in the head with a rock. Um, and as she was convalescing in her home uh, as a teenager, her dad was a hatter. And so she was helping him make hats. Oh. And there was a lot of, so she was exposed to a whole bunch of mercury in her bed for a very long period of time with a brain injury. And so she started having these, um, I'm now I'm getting like way down this rabbit hole, but it's so interesting. No, you need um, to know she, the origin. We need to know our yeah. history so that we can predict the future. This is very right. important to know. So, yeah. so she started having these visions from God and she started the seventh day Adventist church. Um, and, uh, part of this church was very puritanical. So, uh, masturbation and sex were the biggest sins possible. And, um, in order to subdue your sexual urges, you needed to eat a very bland diet and um, things that would cause impure thoughts were spices, coffee and meat. And so and I mean, if you think about it, if you didn't, if you were anemic and weak, you you probably do have a lower sex drive than Mm -hmm. if you're, you know, anyway. um, And so they opened up these sanitariums all over, uh, which were sort of these half hospital, half 
health spas and people would go for these like weird water treatments and all kinds of wacky things. But they also went for things that we know today are good sunlight. Um, they sort of invented like jazzercise. The idea of exercise is actually invented at these sanitariums because before people just like worked they didn't or walked. They didn't like work out. Right. That was a that's a weird concept that didn't start until the late 1800s. Um, but so Kellogg was the um, came from the Seventh Day Adventist Church. He was one of the transcribers of all Ellen's delusions that she had in her brain that he would they had a little newspaper and he would help with the newspaper. And he uh, so people would eat a vegetarian diet. And a lot of people did have digestive problems during this time. And some of it was for meat because we didn't understand germ theory and the idea that you might need to like refrigerate meat. Right. And people started moving off farms. And so meat was like out and unrefrigerated for quite some time before people were eating it. So when they pulled the meat out of their diet, it did make them feel better, but that's just because it was rotten meat, not because meat is bad. I am incredibly bullish on sauna as a therapy for recovery, heart health, and overall aging well. I personally decided on an infrared sauna from Sunlighten because of the range of far wavelengths and near infrared wavelengths that it offers. Saunas help with detoxification and rejuvenation to rid your body of toxins. It helps with heart health by improving circulation, reducing blood pressure, and helping keep the arteries supple. It helps with muscle recovery by easing the tension and soreness to recover faster. And of course, stress reduction with the warmth and the relaxation of sitting in a sauna. It's crucial for hormonal balance and achieving a state of well-being necessary for a strong physique and a strong mind. If you visit sunlighten.com slash better and use code better to get a discount. That is sunlighten, S-U-N-L-I-G-H-T-E-N.com slash B-E-T-T-E-R and use code better at checkout. So they would go, they would start to feel better. They would eat this vegetarian diet and cornflakes was something that was like an accidental uh, experiment that happened at one of the sanitariums that uh, people ended up enjoying. And then they wanted to eat that way when they left. And so that's how cornflakes and grape nuts, actually, which was a competitor at, um, started. That's how it all started. But they were it was basically invented to stop you from masturbating. Mm hmm. And like putting you essentially in a carb coma, as you were saying, like with the with the cornflakes and the grape mm -hmm. nuts and whatever. And I, I've read also that um, they would do things. And I don't know if this happened yeah. at the sanitarium. I'd have to fact check it. But like things like pouring acid on like a woman's uh, a clitoris. A yeah, if a, they sorry, caught pardon. children um, yeah. masturbating and girls in particular, they would acid burn off their clitoris. Yeah. Yeah. So we have genital mutilation uh, as the origin story of breakfast. So, yes. And so that's where like this idea that I, if I don't eat meat, I'll be pure spiritually elevated. Yeah. Um, that's where it comes from. Um, and somewhat borrowed from Eastern religions too. Although um, in Buddhism, being a vegetarian wasn't like a central part of Buddhism really until reincarnation became part of Buddhism, which it wasn't always. Uh, so once reincarnation became a thing, then you could potentially be eating your grandmother. And so that's why uh, Buddhism is, you know, seen as a vegetarian diet, although the Dalai Lama eats meat uh, for health reasons. And so mm -hmm. um, 
anyway, but so today we've got this situation where meat is, it's got this, people have this like really unconscious anti-meat bias of what you were saying, this masculine, bloody, uh, it reminds us of death. Um, you know, unfortunately also steaks tend to be sold in very large packages as opposed to a nice petite chicken breast, which is not bloody, usually not on a bone. And so it's much it's more, more dainty like, and feminine. It's more like tofu. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's just like a different mm-hmm. type of, it doesn't taste. <laughs> it yeah. doesn't have a flavor. You got a flavor, you got a flavor chicken. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. <laughs> Anyhow, um, and then um, so for the longest time, the animal rights activists were going along saying, you know, it's bad to cause suffering. It's bad to cause suffering for animals. And they weren't really getting very far in that argument alone. Um, But then once they once the uh, the fake meat companies started talking about how they had a better carbon emission footprint than red meat, all of a sudden Oh my gosh, everyone started listening. Meat is bad for the planet on top of it's going to kill you and it's wrong to kill beautiful animals. And that is why all of a sudden everyone is overly focused on this like carbon tunnel vision. And the science is is really complex and incorrect of what they're reporting. Um, But it's a sexy story and it feels right. People make decisions based on, emotion. And then they're like looking for science to back it up to make them look smart. And so they, they don't want to eat meat because they feel like it's bad to raise animals. And so the carbon emissions argument is just a very convenient way to make them look like this is not an emotional decision for them. There's so much there, but the question I want to ask you, and I'll just like directly ask you this Mm -hmm. and then we can kind of piece it apart. So when we're thinking like pound for pound, you know, the carbon emission, let's say that it takes to, uh, you know, produce meat versus pound for pound, the carbon emissions um, that would, that is required, let's say to produce like a beyond, beyond meat, impossible burger, these kinds of things, are they equivalent? Which one is better? Which one is worse? So they're just different. So it's like, is an apple better than an orange? They're different. They, and you can't really compare them. Um, So when we're looking at the process of uh, the production of Beyond Burger or Impossible Burger, um, we're looking at monocrop agriculture that uses tons of chemicals. Their products aren't even organic to going, going into it, right? So it's like chemical agriculture where you have to go annihilate an entire ecosystem to make a field because fields, you know, plant fields aren't naturally occurring in nature. Um, and there, there are fossil fuels involved in driving the tractors and transporting these products to the factory and then producing them in the factory. Right. And the pesticides and the, Oh yeah. yeah. I mean, massive ecosystem destruction. So they can't win on nutrition at all. Um, They can't win on soil health because they're destroying soil health. They can't win on um, so many other things, but they can win on the, if you just look at carbon as a carbon emission, as a re, in a reductionist way. So that's like saying, um, I'm trying to think of a good analogy. I, I've, I've come up with so many over the, over the years, but um, you know, it's, it's like 
I'm wasting water because I'm drinking it, but it's like, I need it and I'm going to urinate it out and it's going to be part of the water cycle again. It doesn't like disappear once I drink it, right? I'm not wasting it by drinking it. Um, it's so in the case of cattle, I'll just explain the the sort of biogenic carbon cycle, if that's all right. Because, yes, please. Um, and in the film, we have a great animation. And on my website, I have um, a diagram that explains this because it's very visual. Um, so I don't know. Is this podcast uh, audio, audio and visual? Yeah. So okay. we can, all I'll right. find what we'll do for post-production is I'll find some of the, I'll link it out in the show notes so that people can go in and check that out. The okay. Well. Yeah. yeah. So on sacredcow.info, I have this graphic and I, I share it often on Instagram. Um, but basically, so in the case of cattle, they are eating grass, which is carbon. And by the way, if they didn't eat that grass, it would die and emit greenhouse gases, whether or not a cow ate it. So there's that. And for every pound of plant-based protein, there's four pounds of waste that would emit greenhouse gases if we didn't feed it to cattle on feedlots and turn it into protein. So there's just because There's the cattle that. is so efficient at like upcycling it. At upcycling, especially yeah. things that we can't eat on yeah. land we can't crop. Mm -hmm. um, so these cows are out. 85% of our beef herd in the U.S. today are grazing on land we can't crop. Um, and so they're, they're out on these like hilly, rocky, marginal pieces of land that are useless to anything else other than grazing. And they're chomping on the grass and... They, through their digestive process, they belch out methane because they've got all these bacteria in their guts that are breaking everything down. The same thing would happen if it wasn't fed to cattle, but cattle are catalysts for this. So they belch out the methane and it goes up into the atmosphere and methane is a powerful greenhouse gas. Yes. Um, but there are not more methane emitting animals in North America than there were before we got rid of the bison. So we just have more cattle and less bison today. Uh, so we actually don't even have more methane from lives from animals than we did in the 1700s. So methane goes up into the atmosphere. And after 10 years, it breaks into H2O, which is water, which becomes part of the water cycle. And then CO2, which is carbon dioxide. The carbon dioxide then becomes fuel for the plant. So through photosynthesis, right, plant, right. plants mm -hmm. take up carbon dioxide. They release O2, oxygen, which is what we breathe. So we have to have that. And then the C, the carbon, becomes the grass, becomes the roots. It goes down to feed the fungal networks and bacteria in the ground, producing healthy soil, and um, about 40% of that can be sequestered in the ground. So it should be looked at very differently than fossil fuels, which are mining ancient dead things from deep in the Earth's core, which are not part of our current atmosphere, pumping them, burning them, and adding them directly to our atmosphere. But there's not like a natural cycle of reuptake in that case. And so the fossil fuels are pumping way more CO2 and methane than we need um, to naturally be able to take it up in the form of photosynthesis. But in the form, in the case of cattle, it is a natural process that is not adding extra methane to the environment. 
why do people dismiss that? Like why, why? So I guess my question is people seem to be, and we were talking a little bit about that. Like they're so myopically focused on carbon, you know, like I I can't remember if we said this in the pre-chat or is on the show, but it's like, you have all these like G seven countries flying on their private jets to Geneva, you know, talking about how we can reduce carbon. It's like rules for thee, but not for me. And then they're talking about carbon, 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 but then they don't like this. It's not like this science isn't available to them. Right. So why is this dismissed? Why is this natural methane cycle? Excuse me. Why is this natural methane cycle where we are seeing, it sounds like a net carbon negative. If you're getting 40% of that sequestered, uh, let's say in the topsoil and it's feeding the mycelium and all like, why is that being dismissed? And why are we not focusing on the, uh, you know, the extraction of these ancient carbon minings that are just being pumped straight out into the atmosphere. Like, why is that? Why are they equating them? And and the biggest, one of the biggest issues we have is the leakage from um, natural gas. So like that is a huge source of methane. Um, And, and, and when you look at it globally, cattle are about 5% of the, the total greenhouse gas emissions, transportation, energy production, you know, the burning of coal, those things are what we need to be focusing on. But instead of industry taking, it's like recycling, instead of industry taking it on, they put it on the consumer so that the consumer feels like it's their responsibility. Um, And it, it distracts and deflects the argument away from fossil fuels um, it gives the shareholders of Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods more money, and it makes their products look really good. The margins are massive in these ultra pro. Like to take something that is junk and and turn it into a burger patty and add all these like weird chemical ingredients to it, like heme, like it bleeds, like it, yeah, <laughs> like looks like it's bloody, you know, yeah. Um, there is a lot more money to be made in that, and and. I mean, I am part of these listservs. I get emails every day of all of the millions and millions of dollars that are being pumped into the next protein alternative. Like it is a bubble and I think it's going to start bursting pretty soon. I mean, beyond meat, um, they're, they're not meeting their sales projections. They got caught uh, falsifying some of the nutrition claims. Um, And then environmentally, like I said, carbon is the only thing that they can really win on. They can't win on soil health because they're they're absolutely destroying soil health. They're creating um, massive pollution through all the chemicals that are involved and massive death is happening. And I think it's starting to come to light. There are we need more practitioners that are letting people know that um, this is complete greenwashing and. It's gaslighting. I mean, this is like, this is like scientific gaslighting because if you're saying, if you're putting the responsibility on the consumer and making the consumer feel bad that she's having some red meat because she's anemic and she menstruates and it's, you know, she's getting a full complement of B vitamins, but she's the bad one. Mm -hmm. Like for me that, that seems, and like I'm putting on my tinfoil hat here. Let's, let's, let's go together to conspiracy theoryville here. Like yeah. there's, there's, and I say that kind of tongue in cheek because that's exactly what people are going to say. Like, Oh, here she is talking about people who want to control the food supply. But there, 
you I mean, you control you the have food to, supply and you control the people. That's right. You have to follow the money. If you are seeing massive dividends and looking at even if it's polluting the environment, like big, big, big corporations like this is not a new thing. We see this in big pharma all the flipping time where they falsify documents, they put out products that are, uh, you know, maybe premature before they're ready for the market or they do off label prescribing for things or they falsify or exclude data from their from their trials. Uh, we see this all the time in the name of profit and for to completely exclude the possibility that they might be lying to you so that they are making better shareholder dividends like you're naive. Oh, I get accused all the time of, uh, yeah, just all kinds of, all kinds of things. Um, but it's just, I mean, it is, it is not an ad hominem argument to say that these guys are in it for profit because that's what it is. And not only like, let's just take meat. Like there's a lot of other things that like, are we going to, so that, you know, what always seems to be funny to me is like, let's kill life so that we can have better life. Like let's kill all the, let's just kill all the cows so we can have, let's kill life so we can have more life. Like that doesn't make sense to me, especially when we think like also, you know, shellfish, Lots I know, of methane. Ron, Ron always talks about that one because we looked up like mussels produce tons of methane, moose produce ton, tons of methane. And there we wrote in the book how um, the Green Party in Sweden wanted to eliminate all moose because I saw that. I saw they that. <laughs> emit methane. And, yeah. um, you know, there's carbon is life. That's what it is. Yeah. Uh, meat is life. Yeah. And we wouldn't be apex predator. Like we have been, we have been consuming meat. I don't know. I'm going to take a guess here. 3 million, 4 million years. Like three and it's a half not million years. You're three right. And a half, okay, good, good. Okay. So that was a good guess. I'm very happy with that. So it's not the meat. <laughs> like it's not the meat, you know, we, when we think about, and then, you know, here's another question that I'll, that I'll throw out to you, which I've heard you talk about before. And I'd love for yeah. you to go on a little geeky magic carpet ride with it. It's like, can we look at the carbon footprint of chronic diseases? So, yes, I have talked about that. And so when you think about something like type two diabetes and, oh my gosh, by the way, another dietitian friend of mine had posted on Instagram, all the ramifications of type two diabetes. She was like, I just want you to know, like the, you know, the, the sores, the amputations, the dialysis, like these are all the realities of yeah, the medication. type two diabetes. And she got shamed by other dietitians for, mm. um, you know, saying that it is within your control to reverse this. If you want to reverse this, I can help you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, there's such a wacky culture right now happening with, well, it's, you know, health at every size and all that kind of stuff, but people do need to, I don't care about your morphology. I care about your labs. If you can show me proper glucose regulation and insulin control and your HbA1c is within a regular, you know, your lipids are under control. Well, then we'll talk. Don't tell me health at every size. Like we, we're not going to talk about morphology because I do agree that you can't necessarily look at someone, even though there are telltale signs, like you were mentioning, you know, insulin, like I often see like insulin resistant, uh, you know, you'll see like the dark sort of circles under the eyes, let's say, or like the sallowness, if you're, uh, you know, anemic in the face, Mm -hmm, like that sort of mm -hmm. yellow presentation, there are some visual cues, but show me your labs before you tell me I can be 400 pounds and healthy because you know, the odds of that, the, like, and this is just 
we're talking stats. Okay. So don't tell me I'm virtue signaling. Like the odds of you being able to appropriately regulate your glucose and that your pancreas is not overworking when you are that size is very low. Yeah. It's um, like, I love Lizzo. She puts out great music, but she's not healthy. I don't care what she says. She can tell herself she's healthy. She can identify as a healthy person, but she's not. Right. Um, so don't write into me. Don't write into the show. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I love her. I love her music. She's a creative goddess, but she's not healthy. Right. Um, and it doesn't, I, I, I don't think you necessarily have to be like super skinny. Um, you know, I, uh, and it's funny, like people actually, I got a lot of comments on my body, um, on like these online threads after I was on the Rogan show. And I'm like, first of all, I just went through a divorce and two deaths. So F you, of course. Yeah. But also, um, I am like, I, I eat well, I'm, I, I have a levels on right now. Like I'm still, I work out like it. So I don't think you need to be like, you know, a size zero in order to be ideal. Yeah. But, um, but at the same time, um, we can't have everyone creeping into type two diabetes. And well, this is where the health at every size movement is correct in that you can't judge someone on their morphology, but you can up and like, there's like kind of a standard deviation, right? So there's like, like you were saying, you don't have to be a size zero. You don't have to be a size six. You can be a size 10. You can be a size 12 and have regular normal labs. But once you move outside of that sort of, we'll call it range of normal, uh, a range of optimal, let's say, when you start to get into some of these BMI classifications, like you know, where it's like market, markedly obese. I forget that it's like class one, two, and three. It's like, yes. you know, mild, moderate, and markedly obese. Like the likelihood, like the statistical likelihood that you are going to have appropriate metabolic labs is very low. So I think that the people that were shaming you, I mean, this is just, I think that that's completely inappropriate because yeah. you, you are, a, you are, a, you know, it, it just judging, right? Like you are a normal size, like you are a normal figured woman. Yeah. Um, it's when we get into these like extreme sizes, because the body is a, in, in all of its glory, has the ability to put on almost unlimited amounts of adipose tissue. But at mm. some point that becomes a, uh, a liability, right? So yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's some nuance to that and I hope I'm not upsetting anyone, but it's like, it's just what it is. And I feel like yeah. the more divorced we become, you know, we be like, we started at the top of the hour talking about the death, like, you know, people are uncomfortable with death. We're uncomfortable with death in ourselves. So how, mm-hmm. you know, in the own, in our own, in, you know, with a, amongst humans, like we don't like mm-hmm. to see aging, right? We have this almost perverse obsession with staying young forever. Even and this the is, health movement, right? I mean, the longevity, all, right. all the stuff, see, and it's like, yes. no, we want, we want strength. Not, And that's where like, people always ask me about all these um, longevity pr- um, practitioners that are out there that are talking about meat restriction. Yeah. And I've done numerous podcasts with this, with Dr. Lyon. Um, you know, we've just talked about like, the last thing you want is muscle loss, what you were talking about before, a sarcopenia. So um, the most important thing you have is functional health as you get older. And so Correct. lifting heavy things and eating a 
you know, at least twice the RDA of protein for anyone over 40 um, is, is absolutely the most important thing you can possibly do in order to make sure that you not only live a long time, but you're not stuck in bed with a broken hip that whole time. And I think that this, you know, uh, again, when we think about idolizing some of these sent like these blue zones, right. Where these, we have these little hot spots of like centenarians and super centenarians. You know, I can tell you, uh, having family in Greece and Italy, it's, they're not having meat, not by choice. They poor. They, yeah. Like they, they can't afford to have meat all the time. Like I remember uh, my mother-in-law telling me how they had like they had like a goat or something, um, you know, on their, they were, you know, farming a goat or whatever it was. And then they killed the goat and that goat had to feed her and her three siblings and the parents all winter. Wow. No fridge like they had to use salt, you know, that kind of thing to, to preserve it. But it was like one goat all winter for six people. Right. It wasn't because they're like, you know what, we're just going to abstain from meat because we're better. <laughs> you know, it's, they didn't have the money. They didn't have yeah. the money. You know, they were poor. And, you know, even though the wealth has changed in some of these countries, um, I, I really, uh, I, I take issue with the, the idea of the, the restriction of meat, uh, is the reason why we see like in Italy, uh, you know, Sardinia and, um, I forget the Greek. I think it's uh, I forget the. I forget the. Um, the I forget the in, island. I, uh, I did Ikaria, a blog post I think it is. on it. Ikaria. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and interestingly, in Hong Kong, the highest longevity and highest meat consumption. Right. But that was not part of the blue zones. Right. Right. It didn't fit the. It didn't fit the the script. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I'll, the other thing I'll say. I've said this before. Again. Um, the politics, let's say, like, because they have like bonuses for people who reach over a hundred and like, you know, these, uh, kind of government sponsored, but like people fake their ages. That was the thing with Sardinia is people were, um, I think it was Sardinia where people were fake or, or there weren't even good birth records to begin with in a lot of these places. Right. Right. All right. So that's, I just want to say that because like, I I have a bit of a connection to the, some of these European, like these Southern European, like Mm -hmm. I kind of understand the culture a little bit. And it's like, it's, you know, I always kind of laugh when they're like, oh yeah, these there's, you know, they, they, you know, it's like they have community, they eat with their family every single day. They're also walking up and down hills. You know, they're walking like Greece and Italy are hilly in some, in some cases. Like if you go to Capri, it's very hilly. You go to Positano, very hilly all through Greece, very, very hilly. They're walking up and down and through their land all the time. They're not sitting mm-hmm. at a desk watching YouTube right. videos. They live a very different life. That's why you see the yayas and the nonas living until they're 95. Right. Because they're moving and they're getting sunshine and they're connected to their great grandchildren and they're, they live very close to their daughters and their sons. It's mm-hmm. their community and their lifestyle. I would argue. I want, I need, I totally. need to get Dan Butner one day on the show. He'll never accept the invitation, but I will one day, hopefully, <laughs> and we can have an intelligent, very respectful conversation because I don't mm-hmm. agree with some of the conclusions that he's made. I don't agree with some of the conclusions that Walter Longo has made, particularly as you're saying, no. like Gabrielle is a friend, uh, Dr. Don, uh, Dr. Gabrielle Lyon is, is a friend of mine and we share the same views. You know, as oh, you yeah. get older, you become more 
resist, you become more anabolically resistant to the effects of protein. So you have mm-hmm. to consume more in order to maintain your, you know, she talks a lot about muscle as the organ of longevity. And I would include, of course, the muscle. And I would also encapsulate into that your musculoskeletal system, right? Bones and muscles, they're sisters. They go together. You have one that's you have good muscles, you have dense bones. And if you're a a, a perimenopausal or a menopausal woman, you don't want brittle bones. You want to be able, as you were saying, to sustain the fall. Yeah. You know, I live in Toronto. My genes are from Lebanon and Portugal. (laughs) Like they should. So I, you know, take those genes. I put them in a cold climate. Like if I slip and fall on ice, I need to be able to sustain that injury. I don't want to break my hip. Right. Right. So I shall get off my soapbox now. I want (laughs) it. I shall calm down. Um, I I wanted to uh, maybe just circle back a little bit to death. Um, Because I think um, the other, the other sort of fallacy, if you will, is like, you know, we'll, we'll say that vegans or people who are advocating for meatless Mondays or meatless every day um, really seem to get their knickers up in a twist around cows and things with four legs and fur, um, but are not necessarily concerned. You know, you were talking about monocropping and the loss of life that happens, uh, like the rabbits and the bunnies and the frogs and the voles and the fish and all the, you know, all the things that are affected um, by that. Um, So I wanted to maybe uh, open up a discussion around like what constitutes life, you know, like, is it, mm-hmm. is life, is life worth protecting, you know, that, uh, that has four extremities, you know, or is it that has, that has fur that's like over 10 pounds, like what constitutes life worth protecting because fish also, are. Yeah, totally. And even, you know, is a mouse more important than a 300 year old maple tree that might be the habitat for, you know, all kinds of little critters that are living in the tree that are feeding off the tree that uh, the tree is providing shade for. So is it, is that tree more or less important than this little mouse that may live for two weeks? Um, And and people have a funny, also they think that natural death is somehow better than the death that humans can inflict place on an animal. Right. Mm -hmm. And no, it's not like natural death is being eaten alive or mostly eaten. There's alive. some wild Instagram accounts. I don't know if oh, you, yeah, I follow like, them. they're like nature. I forget the actual nature is like, metal. Nature is metal. That's the one I was thinking of. And there's a mm-hmm. bunch of other sort of offshoots of it that I follow where you'll have like a baby turtle that's just hatched and like a crab will come along and like hold it, grab it and like take it. It's like, yeah, he's not helping it get to the sea guys. Like he's taking it for lunch. I saw that one the other day. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but you know, you'll have, we, we have this sort of delusion uh, around death and then even just the idea, like, you know, plants are technically a life form as well. Right. So like what, and and so is like the mycelium, like the, the, what seems to be like the nervous system, you know, where the mycelium will connect in the communication pathway, let's say, yeah, maybe a better way of saying it rather than nervous system, but the mycelium seems to be like a communication network between the trees. And, um, I, I just, uh, yeah, it's a nutrient network. It's it's yeah. the brains, basically. It's the underground brains of, of what's going on. And also one thing that we explore in the film is, so death has to happen. Like, And once you understand death has to happen in order for life to happen, then you have to decide what 
type of death you want to be participating in. Do you want to be involved with the death that is leading to more death as in industrial cropping? Or do you want to be, you know, one cow raised outdoors in a, in a regenerative way makes eight, uh, 500 pounds of food and actually increases the biodiversity, the life above and below ground of the area that it's in. And so according to the principle of least harm, actually eating large herbivores is the least harm option that you have. Just following that line of thought, that makes a lot of sense to me because if you have, especially if it's a regenerative ag situation, uh, you know, maybe the the cow or the bison or whatever is, you know, kind of pooping and then you have the dung beetles and then you have the worms and you have the topsoil restored. So you have all the and critters. the birds and, are eating the parasites. Right. And right. I mean, and then the predators the, of the birds are there and then it's, yeah. So the amount of life that you would see on a regenerative farm, just the the crickets, the the pulsing. Um, there's a really great video, a very short video. I think it's called 10,000 Beating Hearts. Um, and it's about uh, white oak pastures, which is actually where I'm off to later this this week um, to do a farm and nutrition workshop with, mm. the, with the farmer, Will Harris. And his farm used to be a conventional farm. He turned it into a regenerative farm and just the amount of life that they're seeing there um, wildlife uh, coming back in addition to they're producing healthy meat. They're also producing livelihoods. I mean, rural America, rural everywhere is really suffering from the loss of independent small scale and medium scale farmers. And um, when we have these regenerative farms um, where, you know, they're still needing actual humans to work there. They're providing jobs for people. Um, and so these, uh, these people that want to just eat protein pucks made out of, um, you know, a, you know, one tractor that doesn't even require a human um, there, that's not more jobs. That's not more life. That's just more death. Yeah. There was, my son had, um, had a project at school. I think it was called the smallest, biggest farm or the biggest, smallest farm, the biggest little farm, biggest, small, biggest little farm, biggest little farm. Yes. So he had to watch this. So I watched it with him and oh, it was this cool. couple from Santa Monica and they wanted yep. to move to, you know, somewhere. And then they had all these issues trying to, when they first bought the land, it was like the yep. soil was like sand, it was dead. And then, you know, they had this, um, I think they had, um, like, a, someone who was really, uh, uh well-versed in regenerative agriculture. And it took them about seven years, I think it was to turn the farm from this sort of dead wasteland, dead soil into this really thriving, um, farm where everything was, all the ecosystems were kind of in balance because they would have issues every year with like predation, like too much of one thing would lead to, you know, too many worms or there was too many ducks or too many foxes or whatever it was, but it was a really great, I was really happy to see that in the school curriculum. I am thrilled that it was in the school curriculum. I think that it's, it's a really great primer, especially right before sacred cow, which then really gets into the critical importance of meat and livestock. So yeah. my, my film is much more like the sort of the high school college version of the biggest little farm, which is I think really great for just anyone kind of just dipping their toe into um, food production and, and the idea of farming. The last thing I wanted to uh, maybe get your thoughts on is 
another topic around protein um, that I've been hearing a lot of lately, which is like alternative protein sources like crickets. We've talked a little bit about mm. crickets. Um, seeing a lot of that as well. Uh, yeah. Wanted to know what your thoughts are. I mean, I'm just going to state my bias. I think it's gross. Oh yeah. I do <laughs> uh, so too. I, I don't know. I mean, I, but I don't know enough about the nutritional composition, uh, of cricket, uh, protein. Is it like comparable, let's say to beef? Uh, and then what would be, you know, obviously a cricket and a cow, uh, very different volume and mass there. So what would be yeah. the you know, impact maybe on the environment or the production costs around that. Do we see that as a viable alternative uh, to yeah. meat? Like, let's say a vegan, you know, could we add crickets? I mean, I don't know if they would be yeah, opposed yeah, to that yeah. or not. I, but I see what you mean. Yeah. Yep. Um, well, first of all, if, if vegans just wanted to add a little bit of oysters or desiccated liver capsules to their diet, I think it would do them worlds and worlds of good because then, I mean, oysters are just, as you know, so off the charts when it comes to B12 and zinc and mm -hmm. just hard to find things in plants. Um, and then if you add some, um, and I think it qualifies for many vegans who are very, you it, know, does, they, it does. Yeah. Cause it doesn't have a heartbeat. There's no blood system, et cetera. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, but in the, in the case of crickets, we have a few things. One is um, the chitin and um, people who have uh, shellfish allergies. Um, and so I am very concerned about uh, ground cricket powder ending up in everyday items that um, someone with a, a, a certain type of seafood allergy might not think to look on the label. Those are analogs, a shellfish allergy and a cricket allergy? Uh from or what I understand, I think it's like people who are allergic to things like lobsters. It's the same. It's like the exoskeleton chitin. that yes, they're having. It's the same that. thing. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and so there's that. Um, as far as protein, I haven't really looked up like the amino acid profile. I would assume that it would be comparable because it's an animal source food. And it is important that you and I talk about our bias because just because you and I don't like the idea of eating crickets or mealworms or something like that doesn't mean that it's not a perfectly viable food for someone right. else if that's the best that they can get, right? Correct, correct. Um, I, I, when I lived on the farm, we had a ton of guys that worked there that were from the Sacred Valley of Peru. Guinea pigs were their thing. They loved them and it made sense. They didn't have a lot of refrigeration, so they need kind of like a one meal deal, like all at once kind of thing. And mm -hmm. they love the taste of it. And it was, just, it was a good, healthy option for them. It's just not my thing, but I'm not going to tell them not to eat that. Right. A hundred percent. Yeah. But uh, as far as the mash production, uh, I have not seen really awesome information coming from the cricket protein industry. What I have seen has been these like weird cardboard sort of tenement condo type situations, um, for these crickets, uh, that are being just fed grain, like straight monocrop grain. Um, so because they're the, trying to they're, fatten them up. I mean, that's what they, that's what they're fed on these cricket farms. And is that their the, natural diet? No, can't be. They well, can't no. Um, but I mean, they're not improving soil health. They're not improving water cycles. I mean, what we can do with cattle is so incredible. And, and it doesn't only have to be regenerative. I think I mentioned earlier how um, for every pound of plant-based protein, we have four pounds of waste. And so 
that waste can either sit in a pile and emit greenhouse gases, or we can add it to the ration on the feedlot and turn that into protein and upcycle that nutrients into protein. And so um, when you look at the just the grain that goes into feeding cattle over the lifespan of that animal, and they're not spending their whole life on feedlots, the ones that are finished on feedlots only spend about three months on feedlots, but they start their lives all like on a calf cow operation in like Montana or Wyoming or something like that. Um, but so over their whole life cycle, it's only about two and a half pounds of grain to one pound of beef. The rest of what that animal is eating is stuff we can't eat. And so just from a basic nutrition perspective, if I was presented with two and a half pounds of corn or one pound of steak, there's, of course, I would choose the one pound of steak. And, but the conversation globally right now is pounds of food or calories of food, not nutrients. And we need to move it into amino acids and nutrients and bioavailable protein and nutrients and not pounds of food, mm -hmm. um, because that's what's currently being talked about right now. Okay. And yeah, I, I will clarify. I think both you and I are saying that you, not that you shouldn't not eat crickets. Cause I know that they're like, you know, they, at least from my very limited understanding, they seem to also be a delicacy. Like so I know that there's like chocolate covered cricket. Like if you go to Mexico, let's say like, that's like something yeah. that's, you know, a lovely chance. I have some friends that, that love eating these like dried up dead ants. Yeah. And, and you see that in China as well. Yeah. They'll do, yeah. they'll do that as well. So, and I, I remember listening to, um, I forget her name now. She uh, she was in North Korea. Uh, she was on the Jordan Peterson podcast and she escaped North Korea. Um, mm. And she was talking about, you know, when like, you know, bugs were a big part of her, like the protein sources um, from her diet. So it's not that you can't, it's not that you can't consume bugs. It's just my personal palate. I just, I can't, I can't, I, I just, I'm going to always choose I have choose a hard meat. time with liver. Yeah. I actually, I, still don't want, I, I, I do the pills. I can't, I can't I do, do the pills. So, yeah. No. And you know what? I did this nutrient density challenge one time um, with a bunch of other nutrition dorks and eating red meat three times a day. I still did not get my iron um, minimum. Mm. And so I had to take the uh, desiccated liver in order to even just meet my minimum as a menstruating woman. Yeah. So. Yeah. I, uh, I'm, I can do liver worst. So this is like from my childhood. Like I used to just love a piece of toast with liverwurst. So I can do the liverwurst. It's like liver with some, some heart and like some other spices and stuff. It's a German, um, yeah. thing. So I, I can do that, but I do take the desiccated liver cause I can't, even when I try to hide it, you know, like I'll take beef hearts and I'll like, or chicken hearts rather, and I'll like chop them up and like try to put them in my ground. I just, I know that they're there. I just, I can't, I can't do the organ yeah, stuff. Yeah. So that's what, like, I can totally empathize with people that don't want to, let's say eat beef for yeah. whatever, you know, texture or taste reason. That's cool. But there needs to be some kind of animal source foods. In right. The so maybe the nutrient profile of, of bugs, let's say like a cricket protein might be like a nice alternative, let's say. Uh, for some of these people that can't get over the idea, like maybe they're, they've listened to this podcast or others and they're just like, I just, it's just not for me. Like I just don't want, cause you know, part, you know, a lot of, even when we look culturally, like in uh, Asian cultures, like Indians view cows that they're sacred, right? The name of your mm -hmm. book, right? Sacred mm -hmm. cat, like they're, they're sacred uh, revered animals. So eating them just seems criminal, um, but maybe alternative animal-based uh, 
protein sources like crickets, let's say, might be something that we might be able to help to, you know, prophylactically help with like the vitamin, the vitamin uh, deficiencies that we might see. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I have had such a lovely time talking to you. It's always, it's always really nice to have conversations like this because when I have them online, uh, I mean, when I was young and stupid, I would have them online. I'll say that, um, the nuance, uh, is lost in, let's say a Twitter, uh, you know, tweet or an Instagram, um, post, Uh, But Mm -hmm. I do think long form conversations like this are important to have. And I think it's important to understand, you know, we've we've spent a lot of time today maybe talking historically, let's say about Kellogg and like the seven day Adventists. I think this is very important for us as a society to understand where some of these narratives come in, where these like unconscious biases may have permeated into our uh, into our thinking around meat and meat consumption, Um, because without without knowing where we come from. Uh, without understanding the mistakes of the past, we are doomed to repeat them. I mean, you see this with, I mean, you can make this conversation about big pharma, which I've kind of alluded to a little bit. You can make this conversation with big ag, big food. Um, you really have to understand where, and I, I forget the stat, but it's like there's a couple of companies that control like 90% or something or north of 90%. Unfortunately, of our, yeah. Yeah. And then we have, you know, we didn't even get to talk about uh, Bill Gates and his farmland, uh, his project with buying up all the on the farmland. But you really do have to understand, like you said, something really poignant, which is, you know, you control the food, you control the people. Um, So I think the uh, having the freedom of choice, which is based on informed consent, uh, which is kind of a through line of this podcast is very important. Like you really need to understand truly what the benefits and the, uh, and the negative effects, let's say of consuming meat might be ethically, nutritionally, um, environmentally, um, you know, before listening to these really sexy, really juicy marketing sound bites that we, that we hear. So I think that it's much harder to understand the science. So I applaud you for, uh, your work and it's just been a pleasure speaking to you today. Yeah, thank you. And I just want to add, um, I am part of a, when I go to Dublin in later in October, I am part of this International Meat Summit. And we are going to be publishing in um, the May 2023 edition of Animal Frontiers. And there will be the definitive science from a large variety of academics um, on nutrition, environment, and ethics. Um, and so hopefully that's going to replace a lot of that outdated and weird information that's out there. And it will be the anchor, um, research that people are going to be using for the media for moving forward with any kind of policy decisions. Thank you so much, Diana. And I'll make sure that all the links that we've talked about, uh, are in the show notes. I'll get a couple of them from, um, from what we can email a little bit. Mm -hmm. I'll get a couple of the stuff from you so I can make the show notes Mm -hmm. complete. Thank you so much for your time today. It's just been a pleasure. Thank you too. All right, all right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And I must give you the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer here. This podcast, Better with Dr. Stephanie, is for general information only. And the advice, recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare provider's advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship that has been formed and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, 
or treatment. In other words, guys, be smart about this. Take it with a grain of salt. Take this information to your primary healthcare provider and have a discussion with him or her to make the best choice that is for you. Remember, I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. And these conversations are meant for educational purposes only. 